If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, March the 1st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in studio here on the campus of Stanford University is Dr. John B. Taylor. He needs no introduction to those of you who closely follow monetary economics, but to those of you who don't, here goes. John Taylor is the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics here at the Hoover Institution and the Marion Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He chairs the Hoover Working Group on Economic Policy and is director of Stanford's Introductory Economic Center. In 2015, he was awarded the Truman Medal for Economic Policy. In 2012, John Taylor received the Hayek Prize for his book, First Principles, Five Keys to Restoring America's Prosperity. John, I understand another Hoover economist with the first name John is on the short list for the prize in 2018. That is your colleague John Kogan for his very fine book on entitlements. It's a terrific book. It's a terrific book. Yeah. It is. So, Dr. Taylor, each year the President of the United States, well, actually before we get into Trump, let's talk a bit about you and how John Taylor becomes Dr. John Taylor. What sparked your interest in economics? I majored in economics in college uh, and got very interested right away. I liked the idea that you could use models and methods to look at, maybe even give solutions to problems in the economy, unemployment, inflation, economic growth, uh, income distribution. So it fascinated me from the very beginning. I was always interested in the quantitative issues, but they were more on the physics or engineering side before I majored in economics in college. And so that was the beginning, and I, had, I was lucky to have some very good teachers. I went to Princeton, and I had some people who were doing really uh, frontier work using models, uh, the kind of things that people are still working on today, try to think of the economy as a moving uh, uh, idea that's going and changing all the time and not just a static thing. So you had to think about it that way. And I just was fascinated, uh, decided to go to graduate school in economics, got a PhD, and uh, decided to be a teacher, and always been interested in public policy aspects of it. Uh, Princeton economics, that brings up the question of John Nash. Did you know John Nash? I did not, no. It was uh, where Oscar Morgenstern was a, a, f a friend at that time. He was at Princeton and, and worked on the theory of games and economic behavior with von Neumann. Mm -hmm. He was in charge of the econometric research program mm -hmm. at that point, uh, which I was fortunate enough to have my uh, senior thesis published as a paper in that series. It was quite an honor at the time. Right. Did you see the movie? Yes, of course. Yeah. Did, it, did it capture the sense of Princeton and economics? or? I think more in the mathematics side. Uh -huh. uh, it Certainly there was this uh, fine hall, which had the mathematics department. It was a right. little library there, which I used to like to go to and pull off books or just study. Quiet little uh, enclave uh, right in the middle of the campus, but it captured that aspect, sort of the small community that was there, I thought uh, very much so. And then post, um, post-graduate school, the path that led you to Stanford? Well, I went to graduate school at Stanford, uh, first of all, and that was uh, because it was a difficult time. There was The draft was quite active. The war in Vietnam was active. I did serve in the Navy. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it seemed like I should uh, look for something uh, different, so I chose Stanford. I was very happy I did. I had a, 
advisor, Ted Anderson, who is both a statistician and econometrician, right. and he took me on in my work. So anyway, I left. My first job was at Columbia, and I was at Yale, and uh, Princeton, again, as a faculty member, and decided to come back as a faculty member here and join the Hoover Institution in the mid-'80s. How long have you been teaching at Stanford? Since 1984. Econ's one. I've taught Econ one for many years, uh, at least 25 years. Uh, not every year. Of course, I've had a number of stints in Washington in this period, but I've always right. come back to Economics One. It's an opportunity to talk to students who are just uh, learning economics for the first time. They ask off-the-wall questions. I think it's ch challenging. How do you teach the latest ideas to students who have not focused on the subject before? I actually learned a lot from teachers of other subjects. Uh, Richard Feynman is a great physicist who right. had a great course at Caltech, had uh, specialized in teaching the most difficult subjects to freshmen and sophomores. I've always been interested in that. Mm -hmm. Stanford right now, John, has an issue where it has a preponderance of kids who want to be engineers. I think like two-thirds of the class coming in indicates they want to major in engineering. You look at Ivy League schools, and certain Ivy League schools, I think Princeton might uh, be guilty of this, has a large number of kids who want to be economists. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have too many economists coming out of our best universities? I think the economics major is very good whether you become an economist or not. That's mm -hmm. the first thing to think about here. And the interest in engineering is actually largely uh, due to computer science. Right. As a, it's the one area which has expanded rapidly at Stanford and other universities. Didn't even have it as a major that long ago. And so all other majors have declined. I think as uh, choosing your major, it's important to do something which you like, and that's why I liked economics in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think that what's happening now, there is a great deal of interest in computer science and, uh, and those applications. And I think you're seeing an interaction between economics and computer, computer science, things like machine learning, artificial intelligence. So I'm thinking there's some opportunities there for computer science and economics. Uh, mm -hmm. Use those tools. That's how I got interested in the subject. So we'll see. I don't think it's too much different in different universities. But Stanford, being in Silicon Valley, has always attracted students interested in computer science. Very good. Let's talk about the president. Uh, every year, Dr. Taylor, there is a ritual in Washington, D.C. It's called the President's State of the Union Address. Happens every year in January or February. The president goes up to Capitol Hill. He walks into Congress. He walks into the House of Representatives, speaks before a joint session of Congress, and he utters the following words. The State of the Union is, and presidents always pick one word, strong. If I were to send you up to Capitol Hill before a joint session of Congress, John Taylor, and ask you to give a speech on the economic State of the Union, you would say the State of the, Ameri uh, you'd say the, state of the American economy is? Getting better. Getting better. Why so? I think there's been a change in policy after a number of years. I've been quite critical of policy for the dozen years since before the Great Recession, the financial crisis. I think it got off track. I think it continued to be off track. We, we didn't have the tax reforms. We needed a regulation was getting um, more intrusive. Uh, the cost-benefit analysis wasn't being followed. And so I've been writing for many years that we could have a, a, a stronger growing economy if we follow the, basically the first principles of economics that mm -hmm. I've taught students. That was the name of the book, First Principles. And what has happened, I think, in recently has been there's been some changes in the direction that I had advocated in the tax policy and the regulatory policy. 
itself. I've, I've lumped the reforms needed into four buckets, so tax reform, regulatory reform, monetary reform, and budget reform. Mm -hmm. And I think of those four, we've moved uh, in a good direction in the, in the first two, tax reform and regulatory reform. And what I have argued, and I still argue, that that will make the economy grow more rapidly. We have not only had that great recession, but we had a slow recovery from that recession, slower than you can explain by history. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because the policy has not been good. So the hope here is that the tax reform, which reduces business taxes uh, substantially, will create more capital investment, will create, therefore, more productivity, productivity mm -hmm. meaning how much each worker can produce on average, and therefore will raise incomes and economic growth. So we have evidence that this happened in the past. That's what our models say. Right. I think it's going to happen. And the other part of this is the other bucket that's uh, is, is working quite well, it's, it's filling up, is regulatory reform. And uh, in the financial side, uh, we're, we're moving ahead. In the uh, regulatory side, more generally, we're moving ahead. And I think that's a promising thing. It's hard right. to get your hands around the regulatory reform. There's many parts to it, many pieces. But I've always thought that's a, uh, a part of the story that needs to be told more than it is. No, he's very quietly, very dramatically doing a lot on the regulatory front. They had an event in December to talk about this. It's a hard thing to explain to people visually. You can cut a ribbon of red tape if you want to, but you have to let the numbers speak for themselves. John Taylor, you uh, run the Economic Policy Working Group here at Hoover, and you and some very bright minds have looked at what you call the not-so-great recovery. Great recession leads to what you call not-so-great recovery. This is you. George Schultz, John Kogan, Daryl Duffy, Michael Boskin, Ken Scott, looking at the crisis and then coming up with ideas to fix what happened. What, in a nutshell, what did you recommend and where do you think the Obama administration got off the course? Well, from the start, we recommended uh, reforms of taxes and mm -hmm. regulations. Right. The direction did not go that way from the start. Uh, and I would actually go back before the Obama administration we, I think, began to get off track on some of these issues before then. I think the uh, actions on the monetary side, where interest rates were held very low, 2003, 4, and 5, mm -hmm. was part of what caused search for yield, risk-taking, and made the recession worse than it otherwise would be. Mm -hmm. I've been quite critical of the actions taken uh, as short-run stimulus, it's sometimes called, stimulus packages, which uh, we use big time I was suspicious about them from the beginning and have been studying them along with the people you just mentioned in mm -hmm. this group. One of our earliest activities was to try to do a rigorous quantitative analysis both before and after these proposals, including the, the rebates and the, and the uh, support for um, state and local governments that came in both 2008 and 2009. So that's the uh, criticism. and. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence that what I say is true about the Great Recession and why we had it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's more debate about the slow recovery. There's always has been. At first, the administration would say, hey, what's so slow? We had this terrible, deep recession. The truth is we've mm -hmm. always had fast recoveries from deep recessions. And, and the latest, uh, not so late now, but the latest explanation, hey, that's just the way it is. It's secular. We have secular stagnation. Larry Summers uh, started talking about that four or five years ago. And uh, a lot of people think that, that it's just natural. Uh, we're just going to have slow growth. I don't think that's right. I think we can 
have a faster growing, more successful economy that brings more people uh, into the workforce and raises incomes. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've advocated the change in policy. And that's why this group has been so focused on policy since it began uh, about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you look at the Trump administration, John, and you, you praise what they've done on the regulatory front. Uh, I think we can agree the budget reform bucket is a leaky bucket at best. It's just the budget reform's not happening. But on the tax cut itself, you look at that tax cut, and what did they get right? I think primarily uh, the business side, reducing the corporate rate down to 21 from 35, mm -hmm. allowing firms to expense investments so they build a new factory, get new machines, they get to expense that, uh, at least for a while. I think the, uh, there's some simplification on the personal side, the standard deduction being able to use by many more people. There's some reform, uh, the idea of having lower rates on a broader base, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's part of it. But I think it's mainly on the business side, which I have focused, because what we have been missing in this recovery is growth and productivity. Productivity is, by definition, how much each worker produces on average mm -hmm. per hour. And to, do, to produce more, you need better techniques, but you need more capital, right. more, more uh, equipment better equipment. And so the, the tax reform is really focused on more, more capital investment by firms so they can expand, hire people, and ultimately pay more wages. So that's the, that's the best part of it, in my view. Let's ponder Washington in 2019 for a moment, and a Washington in which the Republicans did not lose the Congress. They still have control of both the House and the Senate. Donald Trump, who has announced now that he's running for re-election, wants to gear up for the next campaign, and they decide to revisit tax reform yet again. What did they leave off the table in this round of tax cuts that they could pick up and run with in 2019? I think there's still some uh, simplification on the personal side. There's uh, some ways to even reduce the rates uh, further. Mm -hmm. I think that's the main thing. I think actually uh, what the focus should be is the other buckets that you uh, referred to, and that's the budget. Uh, right now, there's uh, budget deficits are projected to be increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mainly because of spending. Uh, all kinds of spending is going up. And that's, I think, that what, what has to happen for this economy. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do, uh, and it's not popular. But its aim is to make the economy work better for people and make these programs work better for people. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful of that that can be a focus. All right. I'd like to ask you a question, and this is economics for dummies, <coughs> and I'll make myself the dummy in this conversation. You look at the American economy and you say it's getting better. The media will report what on the economy. They'll look at the stock market. They will look at GDP. They might look at consumer price index, little benchmarks like that to raise the economy. But you look at the economy and what measures are you looking at? Do you look at the Dow? Do you look at GDP numbers? Do you look at unemployment? Do you look at PCE? Do you look at consumer credit scores? How do you measure the economy? Well, I look, look at what economists would call the real economy. That real is economy. how much is being produced, mm -hmm. um, where it's being produced, uh, what productivity growth is like, how fast it's growing. So it's more looking at you would think of as GDP, gross domestic product, what's right. produced uh, in the economy. If you just look at the annual data, the quarterly data comes out very slowly. So it's better to look at what would we call high-frequency data, mm -hmm. monthly data. and and it's amazing how much more information we're getting about the economy, the real economy, if you like, almost not only monthly, but weekly and daily. 
And so it's, a, it's really part of the notion that there's big data out there. There's an enormous amount of things you can look at to track the economy. And it's getting better. There's something called now casting, which is popular. So now casting means forecasting where you are now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like a forecast at all, but that's a way to, to look where the economy is going. And, uh, and by the way, when I say the real economy, I'm meaning jobs, employment, uh, how much workers are producing. There's also the inflation rate and the interest rates that feed into that very quickly. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, right now, the inflation rate is, uh, is low. I think it's not a problem, but you've got to watch that. If it picks up, it's going to affect things. And uh, financial markets do feed into the real economy. There's no question about it. If there's a big hit to the stock market, people will buy less uh, because it affects their wealth. So it all feeds in. I, I, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, the economy is a moving object. It has many pieces to it, many parts to it. It's ultimately people that are driving the economy. So you need to look at all this. That's uh, why I think I love this subject. Uh, but I wouldn't focus just on the stock market. I, I wouldn't focus on it just on one entity. And, I, and by the way, the other thing your question reminds me, this is a global economy. You can't look at one account. You can't look just at the United States. Maybe you could in the past, but not anymore. What's happening in China matters, what happens in Europe, what happens in the world. And by the way, all of those countries, all the performance in those countries is related to policy. Mm -hmm. I think you can see the success stories, it's policy. Terrible stories like Venezuela are policy. S the success in China over the last since 25 years is policy. Uh, and, it, and it reinforces my view that you got to get the economic policy right if you're going to have a successful economy. What is the most underreported economic story, in your opinion? I think the what we've just been talking about. That uh, I mean, I would wager you would say the Dow is the most overreported, perhaps, because we just <laughs> talk about the Dow constantly, Dow record numbers, Dow, Dow, Dow. But what does not get enough attention? I wish there was more discussion of, of, of productivity, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Productivity, as I said before, is how much, on average, a worker produces in an hour. Right. That's what uh, makes countries grow, what's, what makes incomes grow. That's what makes Africa poor compared to the United States. Mm -hmm. And we rarely talk about it. Even now, if you think about it, people are speculating what's going to happen to growth because of the tax cut. Right. They're focusing more on, on the demand side. Is, are people going to spend more on this or spend more on that? But ultimately, it's going to depend on how much workers are able to produce, whether that extra capital makes them more productive. Uh, I wish people would pay more attention to that. And, and actually, another thing which we've already discussed, I've noticed this in many cases, things like productivity are affected by regulations. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just as important as tax policy, maybe more important. But it's very hard to get your hand around it. I think we're making progress on that. More data is coming in. And it's not so much just the cost of filling out a form or doing your taxes. That's important. But it's really how it's affecting firms' expansion, firms' hiring, people willing to go back to work. All those things are very much uh, related to regulations. Let's talk a bit about the Fed. Uh, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, was up on Capitol Hill this week. Uh, the Fed chairman is uh, required to go before Congress twice a year, I believe, to report on the state of the economy. Did you watch? And to ask the Ed Koch question, how's he doing? I watched parts uh, of it. It's, it's a very interesting part of uh, economic policy for me. I think he did well. Mm -hmm. I think he's uh, he answered the questions well. He's uh, has had a lot of experience uh, at the Federal Reserve Board and before that. So. I think it's going well. He, 
He did mention a lot and talk a lot about policy rules, which is, I think, very um, interesting. Rules are um, systematic ways that monetary policy is made. Mm -hmm. I've been a a great promoter of rules uh, through much of my career. And uh, in his concluding uh, remarks, he made a specific emphasis on the importance of policy rules. And, And more important than that, perhaps, is uh, the week before his testimony, the Fed released a document called their Monetary Policy Report, mm-hmm. and it has a whole section on policy rules. And it's the second time they did it. They did it last summer, so I think it's a trend. And uh, the, his predecessor, Janet Yellen, began to talk about a more systematic mm-hmm. way to think about policy. In a way, I think that's an important part of the reforms that I've, I've been hoping for. It's one right. of the buckets. And it, it looks like something will be happening. We don't know. It's just beginning. I, I've uh, argued something like this would be beneficial for mm-hmm. the Fed and for other central banks, for that matter. So rules do matter, John. There is something called St. Basil's Rules. St. Basil wrote 25 rules for how to be a good monk. Number three, for example, dispose of wealth, give it to the poor and needy. There are Robert's Rules, which are rules for how to conduct meetings and making decisions as a group. And there is the Taylor Rule, which I believe you wrote about 25 years ago. You wrote about 92, 93, I think is when it came out. Yes, uh, the Taylor Rule is an example of what I was just referring to. It's a procedure by which the Fed or another central bank would help make its decisions about the interest rate. When the Fed meets, they decide on whether the interest rate should be 1 or 2 or 3, whatever it happens to be. And what a rule tells them is where it should be. Uh, based on the economy, based on inflation, based on GDP. Mm-hmm. It's something which um, many people have been interested in, uh, having a more systematic, credible, transparent policy. Mm-hmm. And in history, when the Fed has come close to rules like this, and, and that would include the 90s uh, until recently, it worked very well. Right. And uh, when they've gone off of these rules, it's not worked so well. So. That's why I say it's very promising that they're coming back to think about things like the Taylor Rule. So the Taylor Rule received a lot of attention when your name was added to the conversation for who would be the next chair of the Fed. Are we headed, is it inevitable that the Fed will eventually create a rate-setting formula? Well, they use a rate-setting formula now in their deliberations. I don't think you want to think about them as sticking to one particular formula, a mathematical formula. It's, uh, the world isn't that way, but more as a guideline. Mm -hmm. And if they have a guideline which can be mathematical, in fact, for economists, it almost has to be mathematical. How are they going to study it? Then that will generate better policies. But ultimately, they have to say, oh, maybe the world is different in this way, and so we have to adjust it. So there has to be some degree of judgment as they apply these rules. I've always felt that, Mm -hmm. even though my research uses mathematical formulas, and, and so do all economists. But, but in practice, you have to think about it as applying it uh, using judgment. And what does a Taylor rule dictate at this moment for an economy that is getting better? Well, ultimately, uh, with the assumptions the Fed uses, the uh, federal funds rate should be going up towards 3%. Mm-hmm. That's not too far from what they are projecting at this point. Uh, they're now moving towards that gradually, which makes sense. You don't want to shock the markets. I think that they could have started earlier uh, with this, and as we said a few minutes ago, they, uh, in 2003, 4, and 5, they got way too low compared to this, and that stimulated, I think, some excesses, which 
ultimately problematic for the economy. So I, I think they're they're on the right track, and we'll see if it continues. What would the rule dictate, John, if the economy heats up? Do, do you think GDP growth to 3% is to be expected? Well, that's what I'm forecasting with the new policies. I hope it happens. We don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all the elements that say that growth should be faster than the 1.9% or so that it's been in recent years. So I think it will pick up. And it's a very good question with respect to monetary policy because you don't want to stifle productivity growth. You want to let the economy grow strongly on the supply side if that's actually happening. If there's a pickup of inflation, yes, then you need to have a monetary policy that contains that because if you don't, it will get worse and ultimately we'll have bad times as a result. Right. So this is the question of the whip hand in 2018 and 29. So what is the, what is the proper whip hand at the moment? The, the proper thing for the, for the Fed to do is to continue with their normalization, I call it, to mm-hmm. be back to a normal policy. And that, if they do that, it provides the the environment for these other policies to work well. Right. And the, that's the tax and regulatory and ultimately budget, I hope, which will be part of that. So that's what the, what's best for monetary policy. Right now, there's, it's, it is global, as I indicated before. You have the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, which right. are also need to normalize. That has to be done in a way that doesn't disturb the world economy. And I've uh, been talking to all those uh, central bankers about making sure this is a gradual process, but ultimately get back to normal, get back to what worked quite well before the, this great recession we had. Mm-hmm. You recently went north to San Francisco, and you did what is considered in San Francisco to be an act of heresy. You actually gave Donald Trump credit for the, credit for the economy. Uh, I know it's difficult for people to divorce their feelings about Trump versus Trump policy, but let's ask the political question here. How much credit does President Trump deserve for what is going on right now? Well, the changes occurred after he was elected. Right. He also had uh, Congress, which mm-hmm. wanted to move and tax reform and regulatory reform. Mm -hmm. And he had, uh, I think, the election behind him, which said we wanted to have a a better economy. Certain parts of the country are not doing it well at all. You should have said that at the beginning of your question. There's pockets right in the state of California. You go south, it's 15% unemployment. Go go, uh, to the east, it's 10%. So it's not just low low unemployment rate. So so there's, uh, there are reasons for change. I think there's change that's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it could be better or, or, uh, or not. I think as an economist, I would like to see the policy even be better from my perspective. But I think it's a change. It's moving in the right direction, at least in the two things we talked about, the tax reform and the regulatory reform. I'm hoping on the monetary reform, as we just discussed, the actions of the Fed and other central banks, and that leaves the budget reform and trying to come to grips with uh, the budget deficits increasing and the debt increasing. Mm-hmm. Politics being politics, his predecessor will try to claim credit for economic progress. What can Barack Obama credibly claim? Well, there were things about policy in that period which I've been very critical about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stimulus packages I've been critical about, the lack of tax reform and been critical about. I'd say there was not, uh, he, he came into office at a very difficult time, mm-hmm. people saying all sorts of things to do. The, the recession, which began before he came right. again, uh, in the previous presidency, he was facing. So he, 
he brought things together on that. He did some uh, reforms on the financial side that needed to be done. I didn't. I don't agree with all of them, mm-hmm. but I think that showed uh, some bringing together of policy at a very difficult time. And when you're in policy environment and and you have to make decisions every day, all sorts of things that can happen. So I gave him credit and his team credit for that period. Very good. We have a wonderful intervention in this age called the Internet. And one thing the Internet allows you to do, John Taylor, is you don't have to wait for the newspaper to arrive on your doorstep to see how the economy is doing. You could go online and read a treasure trove of people writing about the economy, bloggers. You do this. You have a blog called Economics One. Your Hoover colleague, John Cochran, all our economists are named John, by the way. I wonder why that <laughs> is. John Cochran, a very distinguished uh, a fellow who came to us from the University of Chicago, he does a wonderful blog called The Grumpy Economist. Where would you turn to on the Internet for reading? It's In this day and age, we get to sort of pick a menu of things we want to read every day to, to bone up on our personal knowledge area. What handful of products would you turn to to read about the economy? It's actually a very good question these days. Where do you go to get sort of right. news that's right. straight? I mean, you could go to the Wall Street Journal if you want to, and you could go to the New York Times and major, you know, and you got you, you should do those as, as good reporting. Mm-hmm. And uh, but even there, you have to sift through and right. and not but, really take it for little. So I actually think the right. blog the blogs are an important part of what I look at. Right. I don't think it's one in particular though. It's, well, it has to be navigated carefully because blogs are ultimately a product of one's opinion in part. So there's a little bias what you bring to the table. So Again, what do you read for balance and, and clarity? Well, I read the newspapers you just mentioned, and okay. I scan the various blogs. There are there's so many out there. There's economics blogs. And sometimes I actually look at Twitter for these kinds of things. Something might come across my desk. It could be something from really? a colleague elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. I just uh, find it um, another source of information. It's hard to... F- sift through it all, but it's it, it's an important part, yeah. So give me an example of a good Twitter feed. Um, well, Hoover has got a good one. Okay. I've got a good one. <laughs> Mine is also called Economics One. I right. teach Economics One, I blog Economics One, and I tweet Economics Ones. What happened to the John Taylor t-shirts? Are they gone? Taylor Rule t-shirts? No, yes. that's uh, the students here at Stanford decided that they would produce a t-shirt with me on the back saying, uh, Policy rules are good, so that's no, that's still around. It's a, a nice little thing they've done. Is that when you've arrived as a professor when they put you on a T-shirt <laughs> in a flattering way? Maybe. Very good. Well, John Taylor, I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to give us a try. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which brings the best work of Dr. John Taylor and his colleagues to your inbox every day. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. John B. Taylor is also on Twitter. As he mentioned, his Twitter handle is at economics1.com. That's at economics1. There's also the name of his blog, economics1.com. And his personal website is johnbtaylor.com. Anything I'm missing? No, thank you so much. Okay. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.